Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm Tom Nelson. If I've not had the joy of meeting you, I would love to do that. I uh, hope I'll get to do that after the service. Um, but it's a great morning and a beautiful morning in this cold, cold Arctic weather. And uh, I want to encourage us this morning. Last week, uh, Pastor Bill opened up God's Word in a kind of a hidden jewel of the Old Testament. Uh, Habakkuk is not only hard to say, y'all, it's hard for pastors to say, uh, it's hard to find. And uh, it's also, when you read it, uh, unless you're used to sort of distant literature and different kinds of Hebrew genre, it's kind of like listening to Shakespeare. It's kind of hard to interpret, isn't it? So because of that, as we continue the series uh, and open up this hidden jewel in the Old Testament, I'd like us to stand, if you're able to and comfortable to, I'd like to read actually the entire chapter. Uh, and uh, please stand if you're able. Uh, and uh, it's hard to find this book. It's hard to understand, but it's well worth it, okay? So listen as we read, and then I'll have a prayer and, and begin the message this morning. Habakkuk writes, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me, what I will answer concerning my complaint. By the way, it's 785. Did I say that? Okay, on your Bible. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so they may run who reads it, that is, they can see what it is, it's big print, that's the idea. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles and say, Whoa, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to sit his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe, woe, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your full of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it 
a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, wake, to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there's no breath or spirit at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is the word of the Lord. Please have a seat. Last week, we encountered a prophet who literally hit the wall of his faith. Encountering the world around him, he had evil and suffering and cruelty at such a level. The question immersed in Habakkuk's three-chapter lament and struggle is, will my faith survive? Will faith survive when it hits the wall of cruelty and suffering and evil? And Habakkuk looks at his own people and sees the injustice, but what he's focused on, if you can imagine with me, is the storm clouds building on the horizon in the geopolitical world in which he lived. There's a new playground bully emerging in the geopolitical sphere in the 6th century B.C. This geopolitical power is Babylon, and he sees it building on the horizon. Babylon in this time was a brutal nation. It had bloodthirsty conquest. Everywhere it went, it left death and destruction and cruelty. And if you were here last week, you noticed the, the poetry, this distant poetry, this different kind of genre, that Habakkuk describes Babylon in two ways, if you remember last week, as a leopard ready to pounce on the nation that Habakkuk loved, the nation of Judah. And also, you will notice the imagery from chapter 1, if you were here, of hungry wolves, a pack of hungry wolves tearing the inhabitants of Jerusalem limb to limb. And we know the siege began in 606 B.C., and it ended in 586, and it was brutal. Habakkuk sees this coming, and he finds himself, his faith in God is at a breaking point. It doesn't make sense. So Habakkuk boldly cries out to God in prayer. And all of us have had this experience, wherever we are in our spiritual life, God seems distant. He seems standing idly by, Habakkuk will say. God doesn't answer his prayer. And he asks God, why are you standing idly by? How long will you wait? So Habakkuk offers up two laments. And lament is a a different genre than we are used to. Because again, this is 2,600 years old in its Hebrew literature. But what is lament? Lament here for Habakkuk, and it's very important to grasp this or we miss the whole flow of the book. Lament, Habakkuk is saying, is not blaming God. He's not giving accusatory blame of God. Rather, what he is doing is he is absolutely befuddled or bewildered in his inquiry of God. He knows, and if you read this text carefully, and I encourage you to read the whole book, it'll only take you 10 minutes this week, you will notice that Habakkuk knows God is good and great. He knows God is both caring and good and in control, and he weaves it into the whole book. So God's apparent silence is not one where he blames him. It is one where he is befuddled. He inquires of God. God doesn't make sense. In fact, in Habakkuk's world now, nothing makes sense. And what's important to grasp this week and next week as well in this wonderful series is Habakkuk refuses to throw God under the bus of blame. He refuses it or willful disbelief. 
Now, Habakkuk's lament ends in chapter 2, verse 1. In the original text, there's no chapter breaks. And where we left Habakkuk last week is he is on the watchtower, like on a city. It's the watchtower of lament, and he is still looking to God. That's the picture. He's getting up high on the city walls and looking for God to act. So we left Habakkuk last week looking toward God. Rather than turning his back against God, Habakkuk in lament and frustration and he can't get the world around him, he still is looking at God. His eyes are on God. And what you hear on the the watchtower of lament is he is basically saying when we left him last week, God, I'm going to turn toward you. I'm not going to turn against you. I'm going to keep my eyes and ears open. I'm going to keep watching for you to intervene, for you to act. I think the best writer of introduction of Habakkuk is probably Eugene Peterson, who wrote The Message. It's a wonderful little paraphrase. And uh, Eugene Peterson says this, and it's important for us, if you've had any background in the Old Testament, know how unique Habakkuk is. And this is what he says. I think we have a slide here. He says, most prophets, most of the time, speak God's word to us. But Habakkuk, notice the different genre and focus, speaks our words back to God. In other words, he gives us words of lament. He says he gives voice to our bewilderment. He articulates our puzzled attempts to make sense of things. And notice, he faces God with disappointment with God. Now, what Eugene Peterson is saying, who understands this text so well, is that what lament does in our life It allows the feelings of bewilderment and disappointment with God that faith inevitably reaches at some point when faith hits the wall in our lives. And it brings it out in the open air to give it emotional air to breathe. In other words, through the book of Habakkuk, we see that lament does not weaken our faith. It's not a sign of weak faith. Lament is a sign of a deepening faith. It deepens our faith. Now, where we find lament often is in this tension we all feel in life is waiting on God to act. Remember, we left him on the watchtower of this big city looking. Now he finds himself not only watching, but waiting. Waiting, I think, is one of the hardest things in life to do. You think so? It is for me. Waiting on God or waiting on life is hard for me. I mean, if I have a flight delay, uh, I get rather carnal. I mean, it's carnal pastor time. Or if I have to wait at a red light, you know, I won't bump your bumper, hopefully, unless I'm having road rage. But I hate waiting at red lights. I mean, I just turn into sort of this phantom. I hate waiting. Or I hate waiting when my web browser is slow. I mean, think about that in a nanosecond. We're going to the microwaves. Hurry up, hurry up. That's how I relate in a nanosecond world. Waiting is even harder for us, I think, in our world, where everything is instant. So what is the hardest thing you are waiting for right now in your life? Maybe it's not a red light or a plane or a web browser, but maybe there are other things you are waiting for. Maybe it's a great job you are looking for, and it's not coming. Maybe there's a special relationship that you long for in your life, but it just waits and waits, like, God, where are you? Or maybe it's a frayed relationship in your family. A husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, a grandparent, a cousin. That reconciliation seems impossible, and you wait. 
Or maybe you wait on God to intervene in a very difficult situation or fearful situation you are facing at work this week or at school or at home. And maybe it's waiting for God to answer your prayer. I think that's one of the hardest things to wait on. When we pray and pray and pray and God seems to wait and wait and wait, it really is difficult. So the question emerging in our text this morning is this heartfelt question every person of faith reaches. It's just a matter of time. And the question we look at is, can my faith, can Tom's faith, can your faith survive when it has to wait a long time? Can it survive? This is the question Habakkuk confronts us with as we reconnect with him on the watchtower of lament this morning. Habakkuk is waiting too. He's waiting, he's waiting, he's watching. He's asking the question, God, why are you taking so long? Would you get with it? In other words, Habakkuk's patience is running out with God. And here's the tension that we're going to see in the text. Will Habakkuk, at the end of this book, throw in the towel of his belief in God? Where will he end up? Where will you end up? Where will I end up when faith inevitably hits the wall of suffering, cruelty, and injustice and God's silence? Now, in this text, I find three truths that I'd love us to to press into this morning for those of us who find ourselves weary and waiting on God. There are three timeless truths Habakkuk gives us that helps us wait. First is this. God may seem slow from our perspective, but he is at work. Look at the verses 2 and 3 again as God now responds to Habakkuk's weary lament. This is the end of Habakkuk's second lament to God, his complaint. And notice the text says, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on the tablets, so he may who runs read it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. Notice the language. If it seems so slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So God responds in grace to Habakkuk's befuddlement and bewilderment. God is basically saying in the poetic Hebrew text here, he's saying, I'm going to say something now, Habakkuk. Okay? I I want you to write it down on tablets. It's got to be big enough so someone running can see it. It's like big font, big bold. I don't want you to forget it. That's the idea. He says, Habakkuk, I know things seem slow from, my, from your perspective, but I'm moving history along. He's saying, Habakkuk, the outcome is as sure as the sunrise you saw this morning. So as people of faith, we need to realize God's promises are not just good as gold, that he will accomplish it, but his promises are good as gold when he accomplishes it. See, the struggle is not just, is God going to pull this out at the end? It's his timing, isn't it? Don't we struggle with God's timing in our life? You say, oh, God's promise is good as gold, but God, why are you waiting so long? It's not just that sometimes we don't like his answers. We don't like God's timing. And this is where Habakkuk is. Habakkuk is completely bewildered, not at God's character, his power, but God's timing. And we need to understand that God, who is outside of time, who created time, who entered time itself, has a vastly different comprehension of time than we do. 
The Apostle Peter highlights this in 2 Peter chapter 3a. He tells us very clearly that one day is as a thousand years to God, and a thousand years is as one day. This is something God is trying to tell Habakkuk. God is the one who has the cosmic clock. Now, listen, I, my bride, love watching college basketball. It's college basketball season, right? Hope reigns eternal for our team. And uh, basketball, like many sports, has lots of dimensions to it, doesn't it, if you're a sports fan? But it is ultimately driven, what? By the clock. I mean, it's ultimately decided at that last moment. You know what that's like when the official timekeeper says, it's done, even though we might debate how the time has been used. When the timekeeper says, the game's over, what? The game is over. We can protest and protest, but we're not the clockkeeper at all. We can dispute it, we can fight it, we can not like it, but we're not the keeper of the clock. See, this is what God is saying to Habakkuk. Habakkuk, you don't like what I'm doing or not. You don't like the timing of it, do you? You're not into my time. But hey, I'm the cosmic clock keeper. When I say the game is up, not before, not after, it's up. The God of the universe who created the universe and created time itself is the official keeper of time. That's what Habakkuk is saying. God's saying it to Habakkuk to us. In 2 Peter 3, 9, we wonder, you know, Peter follows this idea of God's timelessness, but he also addresses the waiting reality that we all feel, don't we? Because in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the verse right after 8 that Peter talks about timelessness, he helps us understand why God's apparent delay is what it is. And notice the text says it is influenced by God's mercy. Peter says it's not wishing that any should perish, but that all humans should reach repentance. God's ultimate timetable is driven by mercy, by love, by kindness, even though we don't all see it. See, what he is saying here is that God may seem very slow from our perspective, but God is very much at work in our lives and our world. God is much more patient than I am. It's a good thing. God is much more patient than you are, and that's a good thing. God is patient. And he waits for his purposes to be fulfilled in his perfect timing. The second truth emerges here, too, is that God may seem passive, but he reminds Habakkuk he will intervene. Notice in chapter 1, he said, God, you seem to be, notice the text, standing idly by like you're just kind of twiddling your thumbs. You've got your hands in your pockets. Why aren't you doing something? And in verses 6 through 20 of chapter 2, the whole chapter almost, God does respond. And God responds in a unique way. He says, basically, hey, Habakkuk, I'm very aware of the nation of Babylon. I know exactly what it's up to, and I'm going to deal with them in my time. And the way he does it is very unusual. Another text in the Old Testament, if you want to look more, uh, this week is uh, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5, very similar language. And here we have a unique genre to the Old Testament. It's called, in literary circles, a taunt. Think of this structure. You hear a poetic taunt. What is a taunt? 
A taunt in Old Testament times, in Hebrew literature, is a kind of poetic verse that calls people out. Think of it like this. You ever had a playground bully as a kid? I remember one. I was smaller, especially when I was younger. And this playground bully used to just, you know, rule the whole playground, you know, like Bigfoot. That's what he looked like. And he wanted to beat us up, right? He ran the roost. This is the picture. You ever had a bully treat you in a playground like that? This is the language. You may be knocked down, you have a bloody nose, bruised, your ego takes a beating, you get whooped up on by some bully. But you look up at the bully, right, and you cannot help yourself but say, you just wait. You're going to get yours. Wait till my dad or brother or whatever is coming around, right? This is exactly what a taunt is. 2,600 years ago, Habakkuk says to Babylon, through God's revelation, Babylon, you're going to get yours. You just wait. See, Babylon is the new geopolitical playground bully in Habakkuk's neighborhood. That's the idea. Bully Babylon is going to face some serious judgment, and it won't be pretty. So the five woes, let me just unpack those very briefly. Remind Babylon and all who shake their fist at God that God is not to be mocked. And if you have your Bible open, notice quickly, verse 6 is the first woe, and we read, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. God's basically saying, if we translate this uh, poetic work here, this taunt, God says, I see your thievery, your greed and injustice. You're not pulling my wool over my eyes. No, not at all. Notice the second woe, verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of him. What does that mean? The idea is simply the economic plundering that they've done and the false sense of security that they have wrapped themselves around in this what was viewed in that time as Babylon, the impregnable city. It's a false sense of security. They went on a rapacious greeting tour, took everything back. It says, na 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 you can't get us. That's the idea. God's saying, we're going to get you. You are in trouble. You can run, but you can't hide. Third woe, verse 12, notice. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. You go, what is that? The idea is when they conquered nations and cities, they were very cruel. And the blood poured off the swords. And God is saying through his poetic verse, I see your terrorizing violence. I see and smell the innocent blood running down the entire streets. But might does not make right. You're going to get yours. That's the idea. Fourth woe, verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink in order to gaze on their nakedness. This idea here is that, you know, all your hedonistic indulgences, your sexual perversions, your manipulations, you're going to get it back. What goes around comes around. Woe number five. In verse 19, we read these words. Woe to him who says the wooden thing, awake. And what he's basically saying, God, God is saying, I see all the idols you worship. Those puny idols, I'm going to topple them just like that. So what these five woes are doing, and you can read them carefully in your own time, is God is saying to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, are you listening? Are you not only watching on the rampart or the tower, are you listening? Because the handwriting is on the wall for Babylon. Isn't it fascinating that out of this text 2,600 years ago, we get the foreshadowing of a phrase we still use in the 21st century, handwriting on the wall. 
Isn't that fascinating that it's still stuck with us? Habakkuk is looking forward to Daniel chapter 5. In Daniel chapter 5, if you've read it, Babylon king Belshazzar thinks he's the king on the hill in an impregnable city. There's nothing that can touch him. Herodotus, an uh, ancient Greek historian in the 5th century, describes what this night was like as well as Daniel when the Medes and Persians overnight conquered the city. They diverted the Euphrates River. I mean, it's just massive fortifications. And the Medes and Persians had surrounded Babylon, and in this very night, they were just, the Babylonians were saying, ah, you can't touch us, you can't touch us. So Belshazzar, in his power and might and arrogance, throws a party, and Daniel describes it in Daniel 5. He takes the golden vessels that they had captured in the temple at Jerusalem, and they have this drunken, frenzied party. What happens? In the middle of the party, there's this hand, human hand, Daniel says, that appears on the wall and writes Hebrew or Aramaic, most likely Hebrew. And the whole place is freaking out. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, this is better than Hollywood could ever do. This is better than any special effects in a computer. Can you imagine what it'd be like? Daniel is eventually summoned, if you remember the story, to interpret the message, which basically says this. Can I translate it? Babylon, your history. In that, the text says, your days are at end. And at the end of Daniel 5, isn't this amazing? Habakkuk is looking to this. God is saying, just wait. The end of Jan Daniel chapter 5 are these words. And it's very emphatic in Hebrew. That very night. Belshazzar the Chaldean or Babylonian king was killed and Darius and the Mede received the kingdom. We know that the Medes and Persians diverting the Euphrates found their way right with stealth and overtook the city that very night. Verses 16 and 17 of Habakkuk chapter 2, God is saying Babylon is going to reap what it's been sowing. It's a matter of time. He says, Babylon, you know the violence you've done? It's going to overwhelm you. You know the shame you've brought on other nations? It's going to come back to you. Notice verse 16 if you have your Bible open. You, Babylon, will have your fill of shame instead of glory. <laughs> Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. That's your nakedness. And this is very true in ancient times of stripping their uh, captives and impaling them. And it was tremendous shame. This is the cup of the Lord's right hand. That's God's judgment. It's the language of Hebrew of judgment will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. You've had it when I say, time's up. It's just a matter of time. See, what we need to grasp here is God's apparent passivity from our perspective with evil and injustice. We all feel that, don't we? Or in our own life, or our own past, or things that people have done to us, suffering, must not be interpreted as God's indifference toward it. See, it's not divine indifference. The evil one will plant that thought in your mind and heart. It is divine timing. Though God seems to wait a long time, doesn't he, from our perspective. That's true. That's very true. Habakkuk reminds us that God's resolve against evil never, never, never wavers. 
It is not fickle, nor is it ever faint. See, God does not always promise us clarity from this vantage point, right? Things don't make sense a lot of time to us, certainly to me. But God does promise us ultimate resolution to evil, suffering, and injustice. See, the Babylonian problem is not just in the 6th century B.C. The Babylonian problem is here today, in our city, in our culture, in our hearts. We too wrestle with pride, don't we? Power, lust for power, abuse of others, idolatry. We see the wake of suffering and injustice in our workplaces, our schools, our neighborhoods, our cities. I don't know if you saw it this week. I turned in, I tuned into the news conference, uh, local news conference. It was just almost more than I could take. Our Jackson County prosecutor was announcing charges. Maybe you saw this against two individuals who were accused of shooting and killing six-year-old Angel Hooper as she walked out of a convenience store holding her dad's hand. How do we process that? When we see the taking of a precious young girl's life, our hearts cry out for justice, don't they? Don't our hearts cry out, why, God, it doesn't make sense to me. We cry out with some whisper of faith, Lord, how long, how long? How long will a six-year-old in a city be gunned down? How long? Faith in God means we must let God be the judge ultimately. Which means allowing all of us and trusting God in the things in our lives that we don't want. They may be hard things in your life. They may be inexplicable things. Because things like Babylon don't make sense in our life. That's where Habakkuk is. We feel this, don't we, when we pray for things that are good and we wonder why God doesn't answer in our time. We say, heal this person. We say, redeem this person. We pray, save my marriage, or free my friend from addiction, or depression, or or mental illness. Or we say to God, God, don't let this diagnosis be cancer. My family can't handle it. I can't handle it. We pray these things because we know that cancer, or death, and sickness, or illness, or unemployment, or addiction, or mental disorders, all this junk, this broken world, are not part of God's ultimate plan. And we feel it. We know that. And yet sometimes God doesn't do it the way we want him to do it or in his time. And all of us, wherever we are in our faith, wherever, if we're just discovering Christian faith, if we've been a Christian a long time, faith inevitably hits the wall of this reality. The question is, will we walk through it? We have a choice. Habakkuk had a choice. And this is what Habakkuk is telling us, all of us. He says, you can shake your fist at God or put your faith in God, but you can't be neutral in this moment when faith hits the wall. 
often we only get a glimpse of the proximate justice in this world and we wait ultimately for ultimate justice and healing, don't we? Isn't it amazing that 2,600 years ago this conversation is so relevant to us? See, waiting in a fallen world with so much evil, suffering, and injustice. Habakkuk says, this inspired text, God may seem so slow in your life, but he's at work. God may seem passive, but he will intervene. And last, God may seem completely absent, but he's absolutely in charge. So we need to grasp in the text and hold on to it. Habakkuk is confused by God, yes, yes. But he's not confused by the truth that God is in absolute control. God's victory over evil, suffering, and injustice will take place. It's only a matter of time. Habakkuk banks his whole life on that truth. And he gives us a hopeful glimpse of the good news in the midst of the darkness of this chapter. Notice verses 14 and 20. Now we begin to see the sunrise of good news in this dark lament. In verse 14, you'll notice the scripture says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In the midst of this dark, in the midst of this waiting, there's this burst of gospel hope. We wait with fallen creation, Paul says. We groan with creation that is broken. We can be confident one day yet future, God's perfect timing will make all things new. Apostle John reminds us at the end of the Bible, in the last book, when Jesus says, I'm going to make all things new, there'll be no more tears or crying or pain or death or sorrow anymore. But in the meantime, God says in this text, I'm still in charge. Keep your eyes on me. I'm still here. I'm still in charge. Notice verse 20, how it ends. But the Lord God is in his holy temple. Let the earth keep silence before him. This language in the Hebrew text of keeping silence before him is simply, you've got to remember God has to be God at the end of the day. You must, I must let God be God. In the midst of my bewilderment and my questions, is God God? Will you let me be God? That's where he is. So it's one of the most perilous dangers of waiting on God is you and I are very vulnerable for false gods to cling to when God seems silent and indifferent. Right? One of the most amazing stories in the Old Testament that absolutely stuns me is that the people of Israel who came out of Egypt, remember the story, God did all these miraculous things and God does miraculous things in our life too. He takes them out of slavery, parts the Red Sea. I mean, you think about it. Provides for them in the wilderness. And Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and received the law. And it says, they got tired of waiting for Moses. You remember that? Moses is delayed. And in the midst of waiting, what did they do? They built a golden calf. Unbelievable. But we're not any different than them. Because the longer we wait on God for a prayer we long for, right? A desire that goes unmet the more perilous it is to fill it with false gods, all of us can build golden calves. It may be the idols of self or popularity or fame, politics, power, money, wealth, financial security, we cling to meeting our own needs our own way. We are just an idol factory in our hearts. And the peril of waiting is often where false gods fill in the gaps and betray us with a mirage of security. Waiting deepens our faith, but it's also potentially very perilous to your faith and mine. Because idols reach out and grab our hearts. You notice the answer 
And Habakkuk gives us in this text in verse four is the contrast of arrogant pride that shakes his fist at God and humble faith that clings to God and gives us a picture of the good news of the gospel. This New Testament uh, text, or this Old Testament text, is quoted in the New Testament. And for one example, Romans 1.17, Paul points to Jesus, the Messiah who will come, who came, and will die on the cross and rise from the dead and will one day return to this earth and bring in the heaven, new heavens and new earth. Habakkuk was waiting for the advent, first advent of the Messiah. We wait for the second advent of the Messiah. Jesus, who once came as a humble babe, will come as a conquering judge. It's a matter of time. We wait too, don't we? We wait. Longing we wait. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come as the conquering king and make all things new and settle the score of all evil. We long for God to intervene, don't we? And the longer we're on this planet, the more we do. Question for us, if we embrace the gospel, is will we live lives of faith or will we throw in the towel of our own faith? Will we wait with humble confidence and hopeful realism? This is where Habakkuk has us. Will we have humble confidence in God alone even when we can't see things perfectly, friends? Will we have confidence that God is in charge and good? And one day he will settle all things. And yet, do we have the hopeful realism that in this already not yet moment, between his first and second coming, that life is going to be a mixed bag of the good, bad, and ugly in the mess that we live in? So what does it mean to wait well with humble confidence and hopeful realism? This is what comes out of Habakkuk. Hopeful confidence in God when my faith hits the wall and a hopeful realism that now it's going to be hard but one day things will be settled. So how do we wait? Let me suggest three practical things you can think about this week. How do we wait well? First, wait faithfully. What I mean by that is continue to ask and wrestle with God. Lament is not a sign of weak faith. It's an avenue to deepening faith. There are questions you have. There are struggles I have. At times, much of my prayer is not only praise, it's the backside of praise, which honors God, and that's lament. I'm saying, God, I don't get it. Much of my prayer these days are lament, not of accusatory blame, but bewildering inquiry and pleading with God to come soon. Lament pours its heart out to God. It's a gift of praise to God. When you identify with God about the brokenness of his world and his hatred for evil and how he cries over cities and suffering, we identify with Jesus who wept over Jerusalem, who wept at Lazarus too. Maybe you're facing circumstances that are very difficult. Maybe there are answers that are elusive. And the question we have is, will we cling to God when we face those? I have to say, one of the advantages, there's not a lot, just a little lighter moment here, to getting older. You know, I'm not exactly old, but I'm on the back nine, as they say. And if you're younger today, I want to encourage you. One of the advantages of getting older is you have more life to look back on the rearview mirror. 19th century Danish Soren, uh, philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said it so, he said, we live our lives forward, we understand them backward. Exactly right. God is very much at work in your life right now, friends, whether you can see it or not. Things often, not always, but things often make better sense with time when you walk with Christ. Waiting is never 
and exercise in futility. Wait faithfully. Secondly, wait expectantly. While waiting on God is hard to do, friends, it is. It doesn't have to be a discouraging thing. It's often said, I remember hearing this as a little boy, God is seldom early, but he's never late. Remember, God's timing is perfect. In fact, in Galatians chapter 4, isn't it interesting that God waited this long to send Jesus? And in Galatians 4, send Jesus, we read these words, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. In the perfect moment, the perfect place, in the Bethlehem manger that we're going to celebrate soon. God's perfect timing in the past, in your life and in mine, gives us confidence, doesn't it? That God's timing now and in the future is absolutely perfect for his glory. Prophet Isaiah uses this language in chapter 40. We sung it so beautiful. But those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength, right? They will rise up with wings like eagles. Isn't it interesting? that Habakkuk mentions Babylon like a leopard and a wolf. And Isaiah says, God's people are like eagles. They fly above it. They're victorious. Isn't that beautiful? They will run and not be weary, and they will walk and not faint. Helen Keller is one of my heroes. She was a remarkable woman. If you read her life, stunning woman. Blind and deaf because of a childhood illness. She had such tenacious faith. And she said this, Life is either an adventure or nothing at all. Embracing gospel faith in Christ, becoming an apprentice of Jesus, is the greatest adventure imaginable. There's nothing like it. So let's wait faithfully. Let's wait expectantly. Let's wait actively. Waiting does not mean passivity. In this time between, the prophet Micah reminds us that we have work to do to bring proximate justice to our world. Micah 6.8, what he has told you, O person, what is good and what is right, and what the Lord requires of you, what to do what? Three things, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus says to be salt and light, that's to be a faithful presence for God this week in your places of family, work, school, that you would be God's hands for a hurting world. Even when life doesn't make sense, and it won't many times, even when your faith will hit the wall of suffering and evil and perplexity and questions you cannot answer. Habakkuk, 2,600 years ago, in the inspiration of the Spirit of God, says this, watch and wait. And next week he will say, and pray. That's Habakkuk. Wait and pray. Even if it seems slow, it's worth the wait. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us the tenacity to hold on to you when life seems to be nuts.